I am really excited and really humbled by by this this uh, specific sermon, uh, mostly because a few days ago on Thursday, uh, the staff, uh, some of the staff, went to a conference and we heard several great speakers, uh, and I was really convicted, first of all, about the level of engagement that I had placed in this up until that point. I had done study, and I had, I had, I had done the things that I was supposed to do to a point, but I had not engaged myself in it fully, and also uh, because of the fact that in spite of a message about finding the gospel in Ruth, it was not saturated with gospel. Uh, it was saturated with do this, do this, do this, do this, and you'll find the gospel in Ruth, uh, which is kind of embarrassing. Uh, but in light of that, I really worked hard the last few days transforming it a little bit. And what I've found is that um, I, I need to do basically a sermon on an introduction to reading your Bible uh, and reading narrative literature, as well as a sermon on the introduction to Ruth. And so what we're going to do today is really just two sermons mushed into one. And so if it gets to be about two or three hours, um, do not excuse yourself. I will finish before the Super Bowl. Um, <laughs> Brad came to me actually several weeks ago, saying that he was really excited about doing a sermon series on Ruth. And I got really excited as well um, because I love the Old Testament. If you've heard me speak or preach or anything at all, you know that I love to spend time in the Old Testament. And so the thought, the prospect of doing an Old Testament book and looking at it from a gospel perspective was really, really exciting. And then Brad said, I'd like for you to do the introduction. And I was even more excited. I was like, yeah, I get to go in there and introduce Ruth, do a whole big overview of it, and we get to throw the gospel out of every page of Ruth, and I was really excited, and then I read Ruth, and I was really scared, um, because Ruth is four chapters, not a long book, but in those four chapters, God, in his workings, in his dealings with his people, he's mentioned twice, Okay, and so we're going to go through the book of Ruth. We're going to tell you about God in the gospel, and he's mentioned twice. All right, and so for me, I'm like, wow, this is a super big problem. And any of you who have kids, like I do, have learned from PBS Kids that when you have a super big problem, you look in a book. Um, and so I went with Brad. Uh, Brad and I went to uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary to their library, and their library is amazing. I think their goal is to have every book that has ever been written about anything regarding the faith or the gospel, to have it compiled in one big building. And they have started and they have gotten a long way. And I went to look for commentaries for Ruth with Brad. And let me explain Southeastern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary's library to you. Uh, if you want to go and find a book on Romans or on Paul, you need to go. You will see that there is an empty space in the bookshelves. They have taken out the bookshelves and instead they have built a ladder. And if you climb this ladder, you will come into an upper room and and this room is full of books on Paul and Romans. Okay, this is not true. This is just what it feels like. Okay? And so they have at least 30 million books on Paul and Romans. They have books on the books on Paul and Romans. Okay? And so if you want, you know, the Johannine books, if you want... Um, 
the, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, any of those epistles, you go back downstairs, there's another big room filled with all of these texts of the New Testament. And I'm thinking, this is great. I want to find this Old Testament room. And so I go out, and there's Old Testament stuff that I'm looking for. And you look for Genesis, and you find Genesis. There's a wall of Genesis, beautiful wall of Genesis. Um, creation, literal or allegory. Uh, creation, literal and allegory. Creation, let's just not talk about it. Like any book you can think about on Genesis is in this room, okay? And then if you want Isaiah or a major prophet, Jeremiah, the Psalms, work upon work upon work. Um, and I'm looking and we, we cannot find Ruth. And so I have to ask the person, where do I find the book on Ruth? And he said, oh, that's simple. Come with me. And he takes me to the books. Um, and as you go, first, um, Joshua judges Ruth. And so he takes this section of Judges where there are five books. And the middle book, he pulls down and the door opens. And you walk into this back chamber, down stairwells to this dark closet. And they have three books on Ruth. <laughs> Take your picture. You can buy them all. In fact, we may sell them to you. you know? And there is just not a lot of work done on Ruth. Okay, and so now I'm thinking, well, okay, I'll consult these books. I'll consult some other stuff. I'll think back to all of the sermons I'm, I've heard on Ruth, and I'm thinking back, and I'm counting them up, and I'm tallying them up, and I'm carrying the one, and I realize that I can count all of them on no fingers um, because I have not heard even one sermon on Ruth. Um, and I am even more troubled uh, than when, when I read the book of Ruth and saw that God was mentioned twice. And I'm troubled because this is highlighting a problem that is huge in the church. Uh, we do not like certain books of the Bible because we cannot break them down into easy, appliable, sellable, packageable, distributable books. And so we avoid them. Most of them are in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament, sorry. Um, and most of them fall under the category of narrative literature. And this is a problem. Um, one thing that we heard a lot at the, the conference and that we've heard a lot in different conferences, different seminars, different uh, messages from people is that the church is on the decline in America and even in the South. Believe it or not, the church is on the decline in the South. And, and we hear this and we know it and we believe it and we see it and we try and figure out why and we try and figure out all these ways why. And I really do believe that the reason that the church is on the decline in America is a lack of understanding of the gospel. And that lack of understanding of the gospel has come from a direct attack on the church and on the, the teaching and on, on the understanding of the gospel amongst the people. And that attack is not from liberalism. It's not from right at home base in conservative Christianity. That attack is called moralism, morality. And that's a harsh word for me especially uh, because I love to churn things out and I love to find and systematize and, and, and stack and categorize. I love to tell people what to do. Ask my daughter. Okay, <clears throat> I do. I do. She doesn't even understand what I'm saying most of the time, but I'm still telling her what to do. You know, she's crying. Chin up. You know, I just feel like I, I get to tell her what to do. Okay. And so 
the thing that we need to recognize, the thing that we need to do is understand why this shift has happened and what needs to happen to bring us back to it. And I think to do that, and this is, this is where my sermon was going to start before Thursday. Um, in order to introduce the book of Ruth, what we, and I had it practiced too, what we need to do is look at 1 Timothy. All right, and that was the big joke. Haha, ha, Ruth, 1 Timothy. In hindsight, it wasn't that great, but that's good. Turn to 1 Timothy. Uh, I'm serious. We're going to look at 1 Timothy. We're going to look at chapter 4. I need to let you guys know this, that Paul is talking to Timothy. Timothy is a pastor. A lot of the instruction for this is for pastors and for church leaders and teachers. However, its application is important for all of us. Uh, we need to learn how to do these things that that Paul is telling Timothy to do. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, uh, he gets on everybody he's writing the letter to because by now they ought to be teachers, but they still need milk. They're not mature, and what our goal is is maturity. Uh, And these are words of maturity. Um, And so turn to 1 Timothy. Paul has already gone through telling Timothy that there are going to be false teachers, um, and they're not going to look the way you think. Um, and so what we need to do in light of false teachers is protect the faith and the doctrine. So he gives them qualifications for overseers. He gives them qualifications for deacons. He tells them the mystery of living godly lives, how you ought to live a godly life, as opposed to a life governed by false teaching. Uh, and he says when you tell people this, uh, some will depart, some will leave. Because these are hard words. And let me say this to you. What we are going to be talking about is difficult. It's tricky. Um, it's, it's nuanced. Um, and so often the faith is nuanced. And, and it's tricky. It's not so straightforward. And so we're going to start in verse 6. And I want you to know that Paul is talking to Timothy about how to live um, and how to lead. And we are inferring upon that how to read Scripture. And I think it's a safe inference. So, starting in verse 6, and if you would, uh, please go ahead and stand for the reading of the word. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. If you don't have it, it's up there if you like following along in that manner. If you put these things before the brothers, namely everything he said before, uh, if you put those things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. That's a hard place to stop, but um, let's go ahead and pray. God, thank you for your word. I thank you that you show us not only uh, yourself, you've not only given us scripture, but you've shown us how to to read it, how to interpret it, how to understand it, how to live. Meet us today, God, and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen.
You can be seated. The problem, as I said before, the problem that we're seeing in the church today, and and I really, sometimes I feel like I'm one of those guys who only finds problems and never highlights the good. Let me say that a lot of good is being done in the church. A lot of good is being done, and the church is growing. The church may be on decline in America. It may be on decline in the South, but in the world, the church is on the rise, and the church is growing faster than it has ever grown before, and we ought to be excited, and we also ought to be mindful then of where we are and how we are dealing and handling the gospel. Uh, And a part of the problem is that we have been instructed and we have been taught how to read the Bible in a way that leads to moralism, that leads to uh, what Paul calls irreverent, silly myths. And, and let me, let me uh, say this first, that the phrase that we're going to be looking at in this text is, is this. Paul says to Timothy, avoid irreverent, silly myths, but rather train up your people or train yourself for godliness. Um, and the idea is that after Timothy has trained himself up for godliness, that he as a pastor will lead his people to godliness and not to irreverent silly myths. I am tying in, although irreverent silly myth has a much broader reach than this, for us, I am tying in irreverent silly myth to this idea of moralism. And what I mean by moralism is this. When we approach the Bible and when we pull out only morals, that we ought to follow. What we have is moralism. And, and, and this is difficult, and, and we'll explain it a little more uh, in a little bit. Here's how the, new, uh, the NIV says this verse. Um, Avoid godless silly myths. Um, and that, that, that's the difference between moralism and morality. Moralism is godless. Morality is grounded in godliness, okay? And, and we need to see this. We do, because this is difficult. Because what's happening is, as pastors, we are not teaching. Um, as parents, we are not teaching our children. Um, biblical teachers are not teaching their students to read the Bible and find godliness. What Paul is saying is this. There is a way to live your life. There's a way to teach truth. There's a way to read your Bible that leads to irreverent, silly myths. And there's a way to read your Bible to live that leads to godliness. Um, and, and this is a difficult thing um, because you can say the same thing in two different ways and one will lead you to an irreverent silly myth and one will lead you to godliness. Let me give you an example that Matt Chandler gives. I have to give credit to him. Uh, I love Matt Chandler. Um, but this is the example that Matt Chandler gives. He says, you know, and, and this is true. The, the economy is in decline. Uh, we are in a recession. Um, maybe we're coming out. Who knows? I don't know. Um, 
I've heard that. I'm not sure if it's true or not. Uh, but right now we're in a recession, uh, and there is a huge problem in our area with debt. And so as a pastor, let's say Brad, um, realizes this and says, we've got to do something about this. And he calls the pastoral staff together, and he says, there's a problem in our community with debt. And so we are going to do a sermon series called Debt is Dumb. Okay? And here are the three points that we're going to hit on this sermon series. Debt is dumb because it puts stress on your marriage. Debt is dumb because it puts stress on your happiness. And debt is dumb because if you don't pay, they'll take your home and your car and you'll be homeless. Okay? And so what I need is for the music team, uh, I need David, I need you to write me a song about debt is dumb that will communicate it to, to everybody. All right? Visual arts team, if we had one, I wish. Um, David. <laughs> what I need you to do, <laughs> what I need you to do is is come up with stickers, t-shirts, hats, uh, bracelets, anything that we can give to people to constantly remind them that debt is dumb. And from here on out, what our community, uh, what our what our outreach, what our message to the community is going to be for this series is that debt is dumb. All right, ready, break. Okay, so everybody scurries off. This is what pastors do. They scurry off, and they're, ooh, I got something to do, and they do it, you know, and then everybody comes back together on Sunday, um, and David gets up, and he leads worship, and he leads a special song, and he sings, you know, if you have $4 and you spend 7 that's dumb, <laughs> you know, and then, then he gets off, and, and the pastor comes up, Brad comes up, and he says, you know, are you, is, is your marriage struggling? Are you having a hard time in your relationship? You've got debt. Of course it is. Debt brings tension. Do you want a better, better marriage? Get out of debt. Are you, are you unhappy? Of course you're unhappy. You're a college student. You're, you're 20. You have $38,000 in debt. You're a sophomore. Of course you're unhappy. You know? Do, do you want them to take your house? Do you want to be homeless? Do you want to live with your mom and... And have her drive you around to work? You're 30 years old, for goodness sake. You don't want that? Debt is dumb. Do you, do you realize that debt is dumb? I want everybody to realize this. Debt is dumb. God, you are good. And debt is dumb. Okay, at this point, I want everybody to come forward. We're going to sing another 12 verses from David's song, Debt is Dumb. Um, and deacons, if you could go to the back and have those bracelets ready and everybody leaves and they take their debt is dumb bracelet and they go about their way. Um, and what has happened, let me first say this. Debt is a bad idea. I affirm that. However, what that just was, was godless, Christless, irreverent, silly, expounding upon nothing, teaching of nothing. That was moralism at its best. You don't need God for that. You don't need the Bible for that. You just need Dave Ramsey. And I, I mean, I recommend Dave Ramsey take him, but you don't need the Bible for that, okay? And so that, that's irreverent and silly, although it's a good word and it's good advice. But imagine, rather, the other side of it. Imagine this. You know, the pastor comes up, Brad comes up, and he says, because of Christ's work on the cross, we have been ransomed from a world 
that is defined by materialism. We have been saved from a community where money and things define who you are and been set free to a kingdom where love rather than money, where grace rather than material, where spiritual rather than material is ever present. And so we reject a style of thinking, a way of living, that causes us to want to be enslaved again to the world. Debt is slavery. Christ has set you free. Do you see the difference in that? One is irreverent and silly, and one is training in godliness. The same thing. We can do that in Scripture, too. Paul is saying that (laughs) the Bible is not primarily trying to teach us how to live. That's a troubling statement. But cling to primarily. The Bible is not primarily teaching us how to live. It's primarily bringing us to life. It is guiding us to Jesus who makes us alive. And then we live in him. Because here's what can happen. You can have a people who are sterile, who live the way they're supposed to live, who live holy lives, who are dead because the Bible has not led them to Jesus, rather to A, B, C, and D of how to live. Uh, And this is why we don't like to teach Ruth. Because it's difficult in Ruth to do that. Um, But you can. There are some of us who are more biblical than those who I mentioned before. And so what they will say is, okay, we are studying Ruth. And in the first part of Ruth, there's famine in the land that God wants Elimelech to be in. Elimelech is worried, so he takes his family out of the land, and they die. Elimelech dies, and his two sons die. Um, and, And his wife is left with two widowed stepdaughters. All right? He worried, and it took him out of God's will. He worried, and it put strain and death upon his, or it put strain on his family, and he worried, and ultimately he died. And so we are apt to teach that like this. Look at Elimelech. He left God's will. Do you want to live God, leave God's will? Don't worry. Do you want to put strain on your family and your relationships? They moved away from where they were supposed to be. They moved away from their friends and their other family, and it was hard on them. Don't worry. You are putting strain on your family. Worry leads to stress, and stress kills, but God doesn't want you to die. Elimelech died. You died. And we hear that, and we think, that's great. And the truth is, you shouldn't worry. God has a plan for you. But the problem is that you've missed the gospel in that. You've only gotten here when God wants you to get down deeper than that. And that's what Paul is saying. Avoid those irreverent, silly things, but rather train your people in godliness. Rather live your lives out of godliness. Rather read your Bible in a way that leads unto godliness. 
And that's a hard thing to do. I know, I know. I struggle with it. I teach youth, and there's a balance because I want to teach them how they ought to live. But I also want to teach them that there is no life apart from Jesus. And that they can do all of these things. But apart from Jesus, that is just as much death. And so there are a couple questions that I've asked myself and that I'm giving you guys. Um, You don't have to use them. I find them handy uh, for testing whether or not your understanding, your interpretation uh, of Scripture, your teaching. um, And and please use this on us who teach you. Um, Whether or not it's leading ultimately to an irreverent silly myth or to godliness And the first question is this, would this, this conclusion, this application, um, this understanding, would this be true if Jesus Christ wasn't Lord? In other words, if Jesus Christ hadn't died on the cross, risen again, and does not sit in heaven waiting to come back and rule, if Jesus Christ were not Lord, would this still be true? If the answer is yes, it's not necessarily that what you've gleaned is wrong. You may have a true statement, but you need to dig deeper. This is not gospel. Also, number two, um, is anyone or anything apart from Jesus the ultimate hero? Is the way that you succeed, is the way to overcome your problems, is it in something you do or in a service that we as the church provide you or in a program or in a method or in a number of steps or is it ultimately in Jesus? And if it is not in Jesus, it is destined to fail. It cannot bring you life. It can only change your behavior. You're called to life. So how do we do this with Ruth? Begin Sermon 2. <laughs> One of the best ways that we can do this in Scripture is to know how to read what we are reading. A lot of times, we have this mentality And let me say, I affirm inerrancy, I affirm infallibility, I affirm affirm the authority of Scripture. But what we have is this mentality that all Scripture is one genre meant to be read one way. But the reality is Scripture is a collection of books, and there are different genres. There's narrative literature like Ruth. There's legal language like in Leviticus. There's poetry like in the Psalms. Wisdom literature like in Proverbs. There's commandments. There's letters. Uh, There is a whole bevy of genres in Scripture. And if you go to Emily Dickinson and you read it like McGraw-Hill, which is a textbook, you are not going to understand at all what Emily Dickinson is saying. And you may derive true statements out of it that are completely false. And so with Ruth, what we need to understand is that we are going into narrative literature and that Scripture has a pattern for narrative literature and narrative language. And the first is this, that it themes around what is I believe the central theme of scripture, and that is the kingdom of God. 
And that has a lot of meanings to a lot of different people. And so I'm going to define it as I understand it. And as I see it, I believe in Scripture. And the kingdom of God is this. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. This is what's established in Genesis. God's people, Adam and Eve, all of humanity. God's place, the garden, specifically the earth in general. God's rule and blessing. Don't eat of the tree. However, I'm going to bless you by being fruitful and multiplying, and the land will be yours. You can eat from anything, and you'll rule. That's a pretty good blessing. God establishes right away. Okay, and, and we see that patterned out throughout Scripture. Sometimes it's different. Sometimes God's people are Israel, and the place that they're in is Israel. Sometimes God's people are the church, and the place that they're in is throughout the world. And sometimes, eventually, God's people will be all of the redeemed, and their place will be all of the renewed world. It's, it's, a, it's a story about one major theme, the kingdom of God. And you need to see that. And then it often follows motifs such as creation, fall, and redemption. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at Ruth and we're going to look at, at two different um, introductions, two different overviews to Ruth. Brad is going to get more detailed. These will be very surface. But I want you to see how, as opposed to, to reading it like we did about Elimelech earlier, how we can read the, the, the book of Ruth in a way that leads to the gospel. And the first is this that what we see is Elimelech and the rest of his family, God's people, in Bethlehem, in Israel, God's place. However, they are currently feeling the effects of the fall. And I say this because there's a famine in the land. Okay, and if you remember the curse, there were three things, right? The curse of the woman, um, trouble and childbearing, the curse given to Adam, the land will fight against you, uh, and the curse given to the serpent, which is the blessing to us, the seed, which we'll see later. And so they start in the land, and there's this understanding that there's a fall. God's people were in God's place under God's rule and blessing. However, there is a famine. And so they leave God's place much like in the fall. And what we find is that Elimelech and his two sons die, and that Orpah and Ruth have no children, and Naomi is just about beyond the place in the state where she will have children. And so we see two effects of the fall now. The, the barrenness of the land and the barrenness of the women. And we need to see that this is working out, because what happens is they, that God and his divine providence, and his, his great love. Um, out of his chesed, which Brad will go more into later, he brings them back. He redeems them. He brings them back to a land that has bread, that has grain, that is now fertile again. All right, and so we see the great picture of God redeeming his people from the curse. But then they get back to the land, and you see the second theme, the second element of this theme, because Ruth meets this guy named Boaz, and we won't go fully into that story. We'll do it in a few weeks. And Boaz purchases Ruth. And let me, let me explain to you um, what this means Boaz buys Ruth to be his own, 
to be his bride. And so essentially what Boaz is doing is buying her out of the curse of singleness and of barrenness. And we know this because God blesses their relationship with a child. And she is fully redeemed. And so Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. He buys Ruth for himself to be his bride. And Charles Hatley Spurgeon has said that Jesus is our great and glorious Boaz. Because he buys us, the church, out of the curse to be his bride and to lavish upon us his blessings and his fruitfulness. That's a lot different story from don't worry. It's the gospel. But then get this. This is what's great about this story. This is why I love Ruth. Their child, his name is Obed. Obed is the father of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. Okay, Ruth is an ancestor of David, ancestor of Jesus. Remember, the curse to the serpent was the seed. And so what God has done in the story of Ruth is he has taken a place, he's taken his people from a place where there is no hope for the seed to carry on. And through loving kindness towards Naomi and Ruth and from Boaz to Ruth and in all of this story, he has continued the gospel story by preserving the seed from which his promised person, Jesus, would come. This is a rich story and a rich understanding of the story. Ruth preaches and echoes and whispers the gospel. We're going to look more and more in that over the next four weeks. Um, However, I encourage you to read it again in this light. Uh, Because what we've done is we've avoided an irreverent, silly myth. And we've instructed and we've seen the gospel which leads to godliness. Train yourself up in godliness. Let's pray.